listeners, and welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. It is Monday morning, which means we have a brand new episode for you. Today is our last interview of this semester, but not to worry, our mid-year special will be coming out next week. I'm Andy Alexander, and joining me today is... Allison Isidore. It's so great to have you here. Uh, Allison, of course, is the video editor for the RSP. And so it's great to have you here doing a book in this week. Yeah, it's great being here. Thanks for uh, having me on, Andy. Oh, absolutely. Hey, didn't you do a interview with David Robertson? I did. Can you tell us about it? Yes, I had the pleasure of interviewing our co-founder, David Robertson, about his new book, Gnosticism and the History of Religions. In this episode, David walks us through how the history of the term Gnosticism has been used, particularly with regard to the study of religion, and he provides a really fantastic analysis of how we engage and think critically about the categories and the terms that we use in our studies and pushes us to question more about how we employ different classifications. So even though this may seem like a particularly niche topic, it's it's really quite relevant to the academic study of religion more broadly. So I think it is a really interesting episode, of course. I'm biased since I got to record it, but I hope that everyone will enjoy it. So let's take a listen. Hello and welcome. I am Andy Alexander and I am very pleased to be joined here today by the Religious Studies Project co-founder, David Robertson. Thanks for joining me here today. Thanks for having me. Um, I feel feel like I'm, I'm coming back quite quickly after the last time, but uh, at least it's a different subject this time. Yeah, it hasn't been too long since our last interview. That was toward the end of last season, where we were talking about conspiracy theories. But today, we are here to talk about your new book, Gnosticism and the History of Religions, which was published with Bloomsbury earlier this year. First, congratulations on the new book. That's very exciting. Thank you. It was, uh, took me four years to write this one. Yeah, I'm not surprised, just considering the breadth and range of the topics and areas that you engage for this particular study. Before we dive into talking about this new book, you know, I recognize that this is, at least it seems like, quite a shift from your earlier work. Your first book was UFOs, Conspiracy Theories, and the New Age. So this seems like quite a shift for you in terms of research focus areas. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what inspired you to tackle this particular project. There is, in my notebook from... I think second year of undergraduate study, we had a module on new religions and there was a few lectures on new age. And there's a note in the margin of of my notebook that says there's a mention of David Icke in the lecture and that's circled. And at the side, it, it says new age conspiracy theories and Gnosticism question mark, because I'd been interested in David Icke for years and years. And if you've read my first book, you'll know that, you know, he very much emerged from the British New Age scene in the late 80s, early 90s. 
And the books that he was writing at the time when I was taking this note, I think it must have been about 2007, something like that. He was starting to use a lot of Gnostic language in his books. So talking about archons and the Matrix. And there there was a sort of Gnostic flavour to a lot of conspiracy theory culture, especially the more sort of New Age end of it, what I was at the time talking about millennial conspiracism. So, you know, where new age narratives of a coming new age or global transformation started to combine with new new world order conspiracy theories. And actually, I mean, The Matrix as a movie is a, is a very good example of where that sort of thinking was at the time. When I got to the end of my undergraduate and I had to write a little sort of dissertation, I wanted to do it. I wanted to write something called New Age Conspiracies and Gnosticism. And I just realized it was far too many things to try and do in, you know, 10,000 words or whatever it was. So I ended up writing about contemporary modern Gnostics in a very naive kind of phenomenological way of Oh, Gnosticism, it's this, uh, you know, it's been defined lots of different ways, but it's kind of about this special sort of experience. And here's some people who say they're a Gnostic. Very basic stuff. And so then when I committed to PhD, I, I again thought, oh, I'll do, I'll do it now. This Now I've got time to do it. And immediately, even for a PhD, there was too many things. I mean, to be honest, I was pushing my luck to do UFOs and conspiracy theories in the New Age anyway. But to bring Gnosticism in there just would have been much too complicated. So it kind of became a smaller and smaller and smaller part of the thesis until I think in the in the first monograph, there's like two sentences that mention it anywhere. It's still the thought is still there, but it's it's very much in the background. And I always said, well, I'll go back to it at some point and, and do it properly. So once the New Age book had come out, I started doing it. And originally the plan was to do a book looking at contemporary Gnostics. So groups like the Apostolic Johannite Church and the Samuel on Weor groups. And I thought, well, I'll have a chapter or two at the beginning of the book that outline the history of, of uh the idea of Gnosticism and how the categories used by different people. Because by this point, I'm working as a, you know, in a critical framework, and I'm thinking about well, who's who's defining these things? Talking about Gnosticism as a special experience. Well, you know, what what are the problems with that? That's a very insider kind of phenomenological way of of presenting things. And so that introductory section discussing all that just grew and grew and grew until eventually I realized, no, this just needs to be the book. And came up with this structure where instead of separating those things out, I could just do it all as one thing. So I can start with who starts using the idea of Gnosticism and follow the different threads until we get to today and and contemporary groups and the scholars who are still using it as a substantive category. And quickly realized how many kind of fields and stuff I was going to have to, you know, how many hornets' nests I was going to have to stick my thumb into to do it. And I, I just sort of committed to doing it and took years. And uh, yeah, so glad it's finally come out. As I was doing it, I, I discovered this whole other story that I, I was not aware of. You know, the way that this category was entangled with particularly the history of religions, but you know, the study of religion more broadly and the way that, you know, Gnosticism appears at the very sort of early stages of what we now think of as biblical studies. And then it is then again entangled with when 
religious studies becomes a separate thing from biblical studies. And, and it's now coming out again when we get to this stage where we're all kind of wondering what happens next after the critical project or, you know, what we're getting this kind of new materialism and it's borrowing from Gnosticism as well. And all of the historical connections with the International Association for the History of Religions, it really sort of is this story about the history of the study of religion. And so I, I was, you know, as I discovered that in writing it, it became just this different thing. Yeah. No, I can, I can definitely, I can see that, especially just given the threads that you work through throughout the entire book. I wonder for those listeners who are less familiar with the topic and with the idea, I know you don't define Gnosticism, right, in the book and make a point not to, but could you give us a little background on the the conversations that you explore and, and how you start tying those different threads together for the purposes of this project? Yeah, so I need to be careful here to, to sort of there are so many threads that I could easily just talk for the next 20 minutes just <laughs> setting this out. So I'll try and keep it as simple as I can. So in the sort of second century, you have these early Christians and some other and some non-Christian writers talking about the existence of something called Gnostics. And it's not entirely clear whether these are people who called themselves Gnostics or whether this is something that other people called them. In some cases it looks it looks mostly like it's other people calling them. But uh, basically, it's an argument about what Christianity is. So we're looking at this period where there's a lot of different kinds of Christianity all battling for supremacy. See, I mean, the, the, the most famous one is Irenaeus's Against the Heretics, right? Ad, ad versus Heresis. And it's basically talking about Gnostics falsely so-called. So the issue is not so much that they are that Irenaeus thinks that they're Gnostics, which is just a word that means to know things, knowledge. Those who claim knowledge probably is. But it's the fact that they it's falsely so-called. So he's basically accusing them of disinformation, right? It's fake news. It's, it's gnosis, falsely so-called, false knowledge, not correct knowledge, fake news. And, you know, this, this goes on up until the fourth century, and we have... At this point, nobody has any of the writings of these people. We're not even entirely sure who many of them are because different accounts identify them differently. And, you know, the later accounts are based on the early accounts and we don't know how accurate they were in the first place, so on and so forth. And it kind of disappears into, you know, it's only of interest to biblical historians, really, until basically still until Protestantism starts in the 16th century. And then because you get the emergence of scholars who are interested in thinking about why Catholicism is different from the Christianity that they want to find in the Bible, right? The term Gnosticism actually comes from a guy called Henry Moore, who was a, a Platonist uh, philosopher at Cambridge. He basically uses it to accuse Catholicism of being magical and cosmological and, and you know, complicated and outlandish theology. He says Catholicism is a spice of the old abhorred Gnosticism. So from, from this sort of position, contemporary Catholicism was essentially heresy, right? And there's a few others of these sort of anti-Catholic versions, but then you get a flip. About the 18th century, it flips around and Protestants start using it in a more positive sense. So they start saying, no, actually the Gnostics, they were the original Christians and they were suppressed by the Catholics, right? So now you start to see, instead of they're still heretics, but they're heretics from the point of view of the Catholics, right? So they become the original, pure form of Christianity. So they essentially become 
proto-Protestants, right? They're, they're protesting against the Roman church, which becomes Catholicism. And that gets picked up, actually, by people like uh, Ferdinand Bauer and Adolf von Harnack and kind of early Protestant, uh, basically early exponents of, of biblical studies, really. Then you start to get, you get a few early Christian texts get discovered in the 18th century. The Askew Codex, the Bruce Codex, and the Berlin Codex. And so they start to get associated with Gnosticism. In some cases accurately, in some cases perhaps not so much. But this is around the time you're starting to get mass publication of of books like this. So there's a popularization of scholarship. Definitely got an interest in exotic religions, right? So the Sacred Books of the East series is getting published. And you're getting theosophy is coming out. You're getting all the various different kinds of churches that sprung up in France, for instance. Some of which used Gnosticism as well as other uh, heresies that are associated with France. Cathars and Templars. and So Gnosticism becomes part of this nexus of suddenly free market religion that becomes essentially what we later sociologists would call the cultic milieu. It inspires a lot of German literature around this time. Thomas Mann, Hermann Hesse, people like that. Jung is reading Gnostic texts. The Theosophists are very much involved in Gnosticism. Helena Blavatsky basically says that the Gnostics were the prototypes of the Theosophical Society, that they are the modern representatives. And she, in fact, makes this further twist where she separates Gnostics and Gnosticisms from Gnosis, right? So you get this idea of Gnostics being anybody who is in possession of the secret tradition of teaching, the secret spiritual teaching, or perhaps secret knowledge even. And her assistant GRS Mead does a lot of work to promote Gnosticism. So he's translating texts like the Pistis Sophia, that you know, very important kind of popular editions of these texts. He his journal publishes um Rudolf Bultmann's early writings on the subject in English, for instance. Jung gets some of his knowledge from from GRS Mead. So he's in contact with GRS Mead personally. He uses GRS Mead's translations in his doctoral thesis. Bultmann, on the other hand, who's also in contact with GRS Mead, goes on to train Hans Jonas along with Heidegger. Jonas's PhD thesis takes Gnosticism and does an analysis using Heidegger's existentialist analysis, as well as elements of demythologization that Bultmann later becomes famous for using. I'm deliberately leaving the question of who inspired who in that particular one for uh, any of our biblical studies listeners. So... His argument is basically that Gnosticism was this movement in the second century that was the same as existentialism is. That it was a sort of philosophical movement which could attach itself to different religious traditions. So it attached itself to Christianity, it attached itself to Judaism. Other writers later would attach it to Islam and Buddhism and all sorts of other things. So we get a trans another transmutation of Gnosticism here. So Gnosticism is not only a tradition of secret knowledge, now it becomes actually a kind of religious movement in its own right. Okay, but I mean, maybe fairly philosophical, but Jonas describes it as the original form in which the rational intelligibility of the cosmos was first radically challenged. So he sees it as this, you know, a shift in the way that people relate to the world. So we have these two kinds of different interpretations, and Jung is also popularizing his version of Gnosticism, which is to do with psychology. So for Jung, Gnostics, again, were this 
widespread movement. But for him, they were the first psychologists, right? They were the first people to become aware of the self and the idea of going into themselves and coming out spiritually whole. And both of these different, these are different interpretations. They're both coming through GRS Mead and this Protestant um, interpretation. Jung's version becomes very popular because of the Eranos meetings, which he starts attending in, uh, I think it's I think it's like 1939, he starts attending them. And a lot of people that we would now recognise as sort of early scholars of religion were in attendance. I mean, Henri Corbin, Gershom Shalom, Gilles Quispel is a very important figure, Charles-Henri Puch, similarly important. And there's lots of others as well, including a large number of the people who went on to found the IAHR, the International Association for the History of Religions, in 1950. And actually, very many of those wrote about Gnosticism using Jung's idea of what Gnosticism was, as well as Gilles Quispel's later interpretation of it. Now, Gilles Quispel basically presented Gnosis or Gnosticism, he uses them interchangeably, as a world religion, as a kind of religion in its own right. So Gnosticism is now, it's become a religion rather than simply a historically dubious Christian kind of movement. But the really important thing is, though, that Gilles Quispel and Charles-Henri Puch are the people responsible essentially for bringing the Nag Hammadi scrolls, which were immediately interpreted through this kind of Jungian lens of, of Gnosticism. So they were like this message left from the past and hidden for spiritual seekers nowadays. And um, I don't want to be too kind of uh, dismissive of the work they did because they were very much the driving force behind getting them all published eventually. It took a long time. Thinking about both this Jungian interpretation and the influence that that had, you know, on the development of the IHR in the, in the book you examine Gnosticism, right, in relation to the history of religions. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you understand that connection and how you approach that particular uh, issue. Part of the difficulty of the book was to not oversimplify the story and not to be too normative and say, you know, phenomenology of religion is Gnosticism. It, it's very complicated. And part of the reason that Gnosticism has been so important and has so many connections is a, it's incredibly malleable. It's meant a million different things over um, centuries. And secondly, it isn't really defended by anybody. It's not as problematic as claiming Judaism or claiming Christianity. There aren't very many Gnostics who are out there to be offended. So you can essentially, it's a free-floating signifier. You can really do quite a lot with it. So you can use it for all sorts of different things. And it's been used to mean directly contradictory ways. It's been the spirit of modernity and it's been the spirit of anti-modernity. It's been libertinism and it's been asceticism. It's There's lots of examples of this. But um, I think the reason that it's been so important from the sort of post-war scene was that Gnosticism, both in its psychological interpretation and in the more existential interpretation, and even maybe even before that in the sort of Protestant sense, is it has this connotation of a search for special knowledge. Right. And so Jung and all the scholars who picked up on his use of Gnosticism at the Iranos meetings, and many of whom went on to really popularize it, you know, like Shalom and Corban and Puch and Quispel, but also Eliada and Van der Lue and Raphael Petazzoni and lots of other people. It 
had this sense of a way that you could talk about religious experience in uh, academic setting, in a study of religion setting. It, it had at its core something that was akin to religious experience, but also a kind of special knowledge. And clearly this has a great appeal for people who are both scholars of religion and religious scholars. And in some cases, it's more obvious. I mean, Eliade is a very famous example of this. And someone like Gershom Shalom, you know, he, in his private writings that have been published more recently, is very explicit about the fact that he's using scholarship as part of a, a religious exploration, at least. And most of the examples of its use by scholars today, because it still continues to be used by scholars as an analytic category. And I'm not so much talking about biblical studies, because that's a slightly different situation. They tend to have abandoned it largely. And the ones that haven't abandoned it are being a lot more careful and nuanced about how they are using it. But in cases where it continues in scholarship today, it does still, I think, have that connotation of a quest for special knowledge, the sort of scholar that Eliada was imagining, in which the more phenomenology of religion scholars in the history of religions imagined the role of the scholar to be, you know, something that bridges religion and scholarship. And I think that's why it's become so sort of difficult to budge. No, I mean, that, that makes sense because it does, like you say, have this sort of, or it, it does kind of exist in this space that eh, free-floating, kind of separate from a lot of conversations that happen because I know it's not something that I see often used in scholarship, at least from what I read and engage. And, and so I can certainly understand how it, it continues to have that, that hold, I guess, or, or influence on certain understandings of religious studies scholarship, I suppose. In the book, I, in the book, I describe it as a strange charm. Yeah, like even when you tell, you know, you you go to great lengths to explain to people why it's problematic. But they, they, it's it's fascinating, right? It's a fascinating story and it's a fascinating idea, and it has this kind of appeal. It's just ultimately, it's not a scholarly. It's not a merely scholarly appeal. Is my take on it? Yeah, I, well, I, that that is the case, and and that's I think what I I found particularly interesting because I don't have a lot of background or knowledge of no pun intended of uh, Gnosticism. Um, of course, I'm familiar with it and have come across it and and things that I've read, but it, it was surprising to me to see how it has not been, or at least as you know, some, sort of from what you've said, as maybe critically engaged as other terms or ideas uh, in the study of religion, which is kind of fascinating in itself. But you you talk about how our sort of the impetus of, of your book of the argument is looking at Gnosticism, right, as a case study for essentialism, or I guess, processes of essentialization in religious studies. Can you Talk a little bit more about how you understand and engage those very prevalent, it seems, still debates about essentialization. Well, I think in, in some ways it's atypical in that it's it's an extreme case, but in setting out the history and the you know the transformations of the category, I think you see very clearly as you're going through each stage of transformation, right? So I was I was sort of flagging those up as we were as I was going through the sort of historical discussion. Almost every book on Gnosticism starts with something along a paraphrase of, well, Gnosticism is a very difficult thing to define, but 
and they go on to try and define it, and usually in some sort of vague family resemblance way, or occasionally in a much more normative way where essentially the author says that they know what real gnosis is and so they decide whether something is Gnostic or not, whether the people that they're writing about agree or not. So you can see as we're as we're going through, you start off with a polemic, which is almost without any historical support. Then it gets reinterpreted again in the lights of a debate between two different movements within a mainstream religion. Still very little historicity to it. But then what happens is that when you then get the primary sources, they're interpreted through the lens of the already existing model, right? And you see that very clearly in the chapter on Nag Hammadi and Aranos and and the fallout from that. In the case of Gnosticism, because you already had so many versions of it, it spirals out of control until you have almost anybody is defining Gnosticism, especially after Nag Hammadi's discovered and you have this sense of, um, I think I did. I can't remember who I was quoting, is the writings from year zero, this post-war existential crisis where Gnosticism comes to mean all sorts of problems in modernity that people have. But you also have this transformation from a, you know, one, a, from a heresy into a tradition of heresy, into a substantive kind of special knowledge, into an actual religious movement. And you can trace each of those transformations and when they become entrenched. And even though people are on the whole more canny than repeating some of the, you know, the world religion idea of it these days, they will still sort of implicitly think about it in that way. You know, we're still writing about Gnosticism like it's a like it's a thing that exists. And if it exists in any sense, it's very different from most of the things that get called it in scholarship. And yet we also have actual Gnostics in the world. We have actual religions who say we're Gnostics and these are our texts and this is what we believe. To which most scholars writing about Gnosticism in the modern world go, I'm just going to ignore you. It's kind of like, you know, when the Christians arrived in the new world and said this land empty of people and ignoring all of the Right, yeah, the, the new world and all of those people that were there already. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, 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 uh, <laughs> There are Gnostics. There are Gnostics in the modern world, but they're not what most people writing about Gnosticism in the modern world have any interest in, essentially because they disagree with what the scholar thinks Gnosticism is, which I think is um, problematic, at least. So I sort of hint that there's maybe we can do similar analyses to other terms like Hinduism or even religion itself or paganism is I think there's definite parallels with paganism and witchcraft, for instance, where you have something that starts off as a accusation of heresy, you know, a polemic term gets transferred into being a religion, it gets transferred into being used in a normative sense by insiders, um, eventually becoming a sort of academic category in its own right that's very different from the original meaning while still the more polemic meaning still exists in other as in other areas of scholarship and the way that terms you know the, the way that 17th century pagans uh, 17th century christians were talking about witchcraft and that got exported to the to africa for instance these are similar sorts of transformations and because i think we tend to i think there's problems with the way that we separate out insider usage from academic usage and actually historically they are much much more entangled than we like to think and there's also issues, I think, with, um, you know, I talk about weeds taking roots and the gaps between the disciplines that Gnosticism is a really good example. In biblical studies, as I say, it's largely been abandoned and where it isn't abandoned, people are 
much more careful in what they're doing with it. There's still the debates going on, but they're, they're I, I would say, much, much... Well, there are actually debates going on about it, which isn't the case in religious studies, really. Whereas when it's used in religious studies, they seem to be largely ignoring most of that work. And, and when they do address it, they seem quite angry at it rather than building on it and doing something um, new with it, which makes them much more like contemporary Gnostics than, you know, contemporary biblical study scholarship into Gnosticism. So I don't have an answer for it, but I think that there are, it's maybe an interesting mode of analysis that we should think about extending to some other categories which might have fairly uh, important implications for, you know, categories in the study of religion moving forward. Well, yeah, I think that is the case. I think to you, what you're doing, I think is, is particularly relevant for uh, broader questions and conversations about classification and, and how we sort of categorize and delineate boundaries for these ideas Right, because there's there, there's a there's a conversation which anybody working in a in a critical framework is very familiar with, where you you deconstruct something. You know, you're at a conference, you're deconstructing something, and somebody puts their hand up and goes, "Well, we should just abandon all categories, and we can't say anything anymore because so uh, we have no classifications whatsoever." Not you know that kind of right that kind of and thing. And like what now? But you know that's right. that's not that's not the move that you're making here and i would say that's not the move that much of the critical scholarship is making either no i don't think so either but i'm hoping that this gives us a different way to frame that because there's more entanglement between the you know it, it, and the whole insider outsider debate right there's much more entanglement of what we're doing and what religious people are doing than we realize actually there's another way of looking at jay-z smiths you know there is no data for religion we're all coeval in these categories what they do they do the same thing for scholarship largely that they do for the insiders absolutely no i that that I think you're spot on there. And it's something that we really have to contend with. And so I guess, I mean, recognizing that we are slowly kind of running out of time, do you have any points of takeaway, I suppose, for listeners on um, approaching these categories or these these terms more broadly through this same kind of critical approach? Well, maybe two little things. One is, yeah, I, I would love to see similar analyses of Things like Hinduism, and where you have a real entanglement with political history as well. And I think these kind of analyses actually do give us an interesting way of using these categories because we can look at them as areas of discourse involving scholars and insiders and popular usage as well in quite a useful and provocative way. For instance, there's a colleague of mine. Conrad Kwiatkowski, who's been right, who was right, started off writing about Gnosticism in films, and he has now moved to looking at the discourse of Gnosticism in films and the way that the presentation of Gnostic ideas in cinema matches this broader discourse and the historical development of it, and how you know, for instance, they sort of. Protestant ideas get reproduced uh, as we get into the internet age and there's an increasing sort of individualization of religion. The other thing is maybe more of a, uh, I'll make it very brief because it's more of a provocation, I suppose, but it's, um, we have tended to present the challenges in our discipline or the, the tension in our discipline is being sort of between, you know, theology and religious studies. But I actually think this kind of this has made me see it in a different way, and it's more about, it's maybe more of, it's, I think, 
Russell McCutcheon maybe, would maybe put it as you know explanation versus understanding. Understanding versus explanation, right? So a humanistic mode rather than a social scientific mode. And some of our categories that we're using are smuggling in normative ideas about what religion should be when we're not necessarily aware of it. What is very challenging, I think, is the degree to which some of the scholars, that that is clearly the thing that is most important. It's not just that these are doing it, it's that when you point it out to them, it becomes very clear that that's the whole point. And that's why there is such resistance. And when you start to identify the way that that challenging Gnosticism quickly shades into any, for them, it's the same as all of the critical project, anything Mm -hmm. which challenges the history of religion's way of understanding religion. So, you know, Gnosticism is a it's not just a fault line within Christianity, it's a fault line within the entire discipline. Yeah, well, and it, it makes me think too, the, especially when you talk about we, the general understanding or assumption uh, of the problem of our field is, is that sort of divide between theology and religious studies. But it does seem that there are so many, at least presented as, as non-theological projects that, as, as you say, have a very a heavy theological influence, whether they are overt about it or not. And that could be an issue of, you know, not unpacking or understanding the history of the terms that we use, that sort of thing. But but I think one thing that you touch on is is sort of this distinction between how certain groups of people would understand their religion versus how scholars talk about it, right? This this does seem to be sort of an ongoing, persistent concern in the field of religious studies is how we talk about that. And and, and what you're saying, right, with how modern-day Gnostics would completely disagree with what scholarship on Gnosticism is, is doing. But what I think is particularly important about how you approach this conversation is not to just then affirm or reject one side or the other, right? But finding a very productive way of critically engaging those competing ideas in a way that it's not about saying, ah, this is this is right, or we have to just represent what modern day Gnostics might think, but rather, how do we engage and take seriously this idea, this term, how it's used in scholarship, how it might be understood by people. And, and that, I think, is a very productive thing that, that you do, and perhaps it actually speaks to a more pressing issue in the field. That was the thing that emerged as I was writing it. You know, and I'm really interested to find out how uh, people from uh, from other disciplines, you know, you know, specifically biblical studies people, uh, theologians, and also insiders, like what do they what do they think of this approach? My general impression is that they, I haven't had anybody raise any specific problems with it yet. I'm sure there will be, but. Um, Doing a study like this that that crosses these boundaries is stressful and hard work. You've got to do a lot of work to cover your bases. And I had a lot of people that I reached out to and checked things over. And, you know, have I got this wrong? Am I misrepresenting people? Because, you know, you can't know everything. But it was, you know... Maybe I'm just, you know, there's, I've got a recklessness that enabled me to do this. And I think, I think it was probably more foolhardy than some people would have been. So, you know, this is, you know, it's an issue about the way that we silo these things off, but it might open up new ways of, of, um, of working across disciplinary boundaries and, and uh, working with people 
looking at different areas of this uh, specifically, which which would be nice. Yeah, it absolutely would be. I think that that is a, a, a crucial takeaway from the book is is how we can bridge these conversations that are happening in different fields and different subfields. Because if we don't, if we are, if we continue to be siloed and, and talking to the same folks, it's we're not going to really make any progress or developments in and how we engage or think about different topics. So, right. I think it's a great example of what to do. Um, we are, unfortunately, out of time, I'm afraid. But it has been absolutely wonderful getting to chat with you today about your new book. That is, once again for everybody, Gnosticism and the History of Religions. It is with Bloomsbury. So go get your copy. You'll be glad you did. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. Thanks so much to all of our wonderful listeners for tuning in today here at the Religious Studies Project. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode. Please head over to social media to like, share, and comment. We'd love to know your thoughts and questions about what we've discussed here today. And as a reminder, our mid-year special is coming up next week. It promises to be a fun-filled and exciting video episode for everybody. So we hope that you will be tuning in and we will be back in the new year starting on January 17th. So we all hope that you have a great holiday and we look forward to seeing you all again in the new year. And until then, all that's left to say is thanks Thanks for for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Savannah Finver and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews. Video editing by Alison Isidore podcast transcription by Jaden Bartashius and social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes and all other portals. Thanks for listening.